From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post Podcast. Welcome back to Off the Post. I'm your host, John Mattis of Post Media, and I am talking to Michael Trakos, also of Post Media, today for the podcast. Uh, Mike, how's it going? Hey, pretty good, John. Always great talking to you with these things. You know Seems what? Like every time you talk, there's like someone's been fired. We have another firing. Uh, Claude Julien of, of the Boston Bruins, or formerly of the Boston Bruins, uh, he got fired the other day. So we'll, we'll start with that. Um, this is their fourth time on the podcast. Uh, you're actually basically a, a, a co-host at this point. Um, <laughs> and uh, like you said, the, the coaching thing seems to, to always be prevalent. So I thought, okay, let's talk about coaches for a full episode here. Uh, there's a lot going on in that area this year. There's been four firings. Um, and it all kind of coincides with the Las Vegas Knights, or I guess officially the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, they are obviously they have their eyes and ears um, on the lookout for for the best coaching candidates, and the there's they're definitely licking their chops right now after you know Ken Hitchcock got fired, um, Gerard Gallant, and then we already mentioned Capiano and uh, Julian. So there's a bunch of candidates. So let's first talk about Julian. What did you think of Boston letting him go? Well, first off, the expansion draft was only supposed to. Um, deal with players, and now it seems like every team is offering up their best coach as well to Vegas. So you know what, this Vegas Golden Knights team, this is not going to be an Ottawa Senators kind of scenario. These guys are getting an all-world coach as well as uh, some pretty good players off the hop. So um, if they can't survive in Vegas or if they can't make it work in Vegas, I'd be really shocked. But to answer your question, I was. You know, I was surprised and yet not surprised because of the Julian firing, just because um, we kept hearing uh, rumblings. And really, the guy has been on thin ice from, like, the time when Boston won the Stanley Cup. Like, there were rumblings like, okay, he's going to get fired if he doesn't win a round, um, if, if they go out in this round. And um, even from the start of this year, it seemed like he was already on thin ice. And it just kind of struck me as surprising because you look at that roster and, They've got such an aging roster where uh, they pick up David Backus, and I was always kind of questioning that move. It seemed like they were they should have been grabbing younger guys instead of kind of getting older guys. And their defense, obviously, Char is not the same guy he was a couple years ago. He's got a lot of miles on him. So you look at the, and I know you're a big possession stats guy. Like Boston was doing a lot with very little. So the fact that they would uh, move from arguably one of the top three coaches in the league was kind of baffling. And as everyone's already said, like he's going to be out of work for as long as he wants to be out of work. Like, if if I was a Montreal Canadiens today, I'd be like, okay, um, maybe we should hire this guy because it turns out like Michael Michelle Terrien's probably not going to be there after um, this year, based on how Montreal's been kind of trending. Like they've got the best goalie in the world, and yet this is a team that's not getting it done uh, anywhere else. So I, it is kind of baffling, and yet. Uh, I don't know that Bruins team. They're a bit of a mess. Yeah, I'll I'll agree with you on that point in terms of it just not really all adding up in Boston these days. Uh, their backup goaltending has been terrible. There was a stat out there on Twitter where they have so Tuka Rask has been good in games that he plays. They've been great in games that he doesn't play. They've been atrocious. So mm. I mean, you add all that up with a crappy uh, shooting percentage and 
you know, I don't know if Julian was a problem, but I get him being the fall guy. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily look at the situation and go, "Oh my God, I can't see how they they could have possibly done that." It's like, okay, I I, I understand the optics and everything. But what? In I think terms every of- coach has been fired in kind of like a, a weird kind of scenario though this year. Like uh, whether it's even Capuano. Like I think he he was actually in the last couple of weeks before his firing, he had actually like been uh, having the team playing pretty well at the time and Gerard Gallant gets fired basically on the when he's on the road and he has a hail of cab like it doesn't seem like any coach is getting fired and you're going yeah 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 of course he's getting fired that that team sucks and they, they've quit on him like it, it's never been that kind of scenario it's always been kind of oh, a bit of a head scratcher in, in every kind of uh instance yeah, even Ken Hitchcock. So he gets let go yeah. uh, by the Blues. And there was kind of a succession plan there where Mike Yo got, got hired because Hitchcock was supposed to retire. But then, you know, they're already they're already pulling the trigger and, and let him go. Uh, I guess it was around midseason, a little after midseason. And I guess to send a message to the players. And obviously, um, if, if anyone saw the press conference, you could see that uh, their, their GM was just, you know, he, he didn't want to do it. He was basically on the verge of tears. It was... It was a kind of a an emotional event for him and and for the organization. So that that's another one where you go, you know, it's just not it. It doesn't seem as clean cut as as you would think. Um, so there's four guys on the market that weren't in September. So obviously Vegas made the right call by not hiring a coach right after you know the team was named or or in the summer when they're when they're making all their other hirings. So George McPhee is the GM there. His assistant GM is Kelly McCrimmon. If you are one of those two guys, or if you're in a room with them, what are you telling them? What What do you think they should look for in a coach? Well, they should just get Julian. Like, if Claude Julian wants to go to Vegas, uh, I would. That's my That's my first choice uh, right there. Uh, you look at what he was able to achieve in Boston, like wins a cup. Um, like I mentioned, like he didn't have a whole lot to work with this year. Like, obviously, you've got Patrice Bergeron, you got uh, David Pasternak, and Brad Marchand, but. Uh, not a whole lot on defense and uh, not a whole lot uh, when you're looking at the young guys coming up. And yet he was able to achieve, I think, maybe overachieve a bit in Boston. So um, that'd be my first pick. Um, other than that, I don't see any problems with waiting. Um, chances are there's going to be a couple more coaches on the firing block or chopping block by the end of this year, uh, possibly after the first round. So you might get uh, at least two or three more candidates, and you really just kind of go from there. Um, the guy I'd be looking for, and it's probably true of any kind of team that's sort of rebuilding, is a, a person who's got a kind of a track record of working with younger players. Um, and I don't know if Hitchcock is that guy. I don't know if Julian is necessarily that guy. But um, when you're talking about just like uh, you really want stability, you, you want a coach that you know you're not going to be replacing after one or two years. Like You don't want to go with the unproven Dallas Aiken type guy. Um, you, want, you want someone like a Mike Babcock where you're going, okay, um, the team's going to be growing. It's going to be going through some growing pains. Um, let's get a coach in there that can really develop a structure and get this team going from the ground floor up and that we don't really have to worry about uh, rumblings about him getting fired or not. So, uh, let's wait and see. I mean, maybe Paul Maurice is going to be available in the offseason, and maybe he's the kind of guy that uh, would flourish in Vegas. Yeah, and the Vegas uh, management group has said that they're likely going to hire a coach in the spring. So it's not like they're you know doing their interviews now and they have a date set. It's it's kind of a work in progress, and it's paid off so far in terms of 
just watching the league kind of go about it, go about this season and, and seeing guys get fired and going, okay, let's add him to the list and just collecting a lot of information, which is really what is going on in Vegas from every aspect. I mean, they're, they have two drafts to deal with and then they have, they still have a coaching staff. They've pretty much filled up their whole front office and, and that sort of situation in terms of Vegas though. So yeah, Julianne, I would agree, is right up there. Hitchcock, if he's willing to not retire and kind of start a new process, because let's face it, this team is, it, as much as it might be better than some of the other expansion teams, it's not going to be a great team to start. So if Hitchcock goes there and and is just planning to do one year, what, what would the point of that be for both sides? Why would Hitchcock do that? Why would the team do that? So that's kind of, if they're considering Hitchcock, I think it has to be sort of, hey, are you in? I get the, and I get the feeling he wants to win, right? Yeah. Like I, he wants to win now. Like I think Florida is probably a great landing spot for him. Yeah, that's... You've got a team that maybe just needs to find a little bit more structure and uh, go from being good to being great. No, that's a, that's a, that's a good point. And obviously when they fired Gallant, they, they put their GM, Tom Rowe, in, into that position. So – I don't know what the situation is with Tom Rowe if he wants to be a coach or a GM, but I, he's going to obviously choose one or the other, and uh, they'll need <laughs> to fill. <laughs> yeah, they'll need to fill the spot. Um, so, uh, but like, let's just talk generally. Like, uh, let's forget Julianne or, or or other candidates. If you're the GM there, though, like, what? Because the thing with the thing with Vegas is that as much as like it's about the on ice product, they also need to sell the game there, and like. They need to have someone that's going to community events. They need someone that's, you know, playing or is going to preach or, or produce an exciting brand of hockey. Like, they need – this is going to be their first season in a market that doesn't know much about hockey, if you're speaking generally. Like, I think it's it's a pretty important hire in terms of sort of the direction of the team and how they can start selling themselves to the community. I don't think that can be understated. I know that – in the end, it happens, you know, if they win or lose, et cetera, or you just want a good coach in there, it doesn't matter about the other noise. But I think this is a bit different. Uh, you're probably right in that. Like, you can't have a coach that's just going to go in preaching the trap and really having boring hockey. I remember being at a, a business conference uh, where Brian Burke was talking and when he was the uh, GM of the Vancouver Canucks. And one of the things he said was uh, he really wanted to have an entertaining brand of hockey uh, to make sure corporate sponsors were out, make sure fans were out, and uh, win, lose, or draw, that they were going to actually entertain the crowd and that there were going to be something to talk about. And um, that's probably reflective of a lot of the draft picks that they were taking. And hey, it's not just going to be up to the coach in that regard. Like It is going to be up to George McPhee and making sure that he, he, he does go for uh, say the Mitch Marner over the the Noah Hannafin, those types of picks because you put like guys with skill on the ice. Well, it doesn't matter who your coach is, skill is gonna uh, shine through. But um, definitely coaching can help in that regard. And I look at like kind of like San Jose, um, the kind of team they've been able to cultivate throughout the years, and um, it's not just about the beards, although that kind of helps. So maybe a uh, lot guys. Uh, let them kind of show their personality, whether it's with long hair, beards, or whatever, but also let them play kind of a, an exciting hockey. Like uh, a Brent Burns, if you kind of pull back the reins on that, and if they have a coach uh, who's pulling the brains back, uh, the reins back versus like a Pete DeBoer, um, like if he was saying to Brent, hey, I don't want you rushing up the ice. Uh, uh, I want you to play just a, a steady game back there, Alice Shea Weber, then maybe you don't get that kind of excitement factor and you don't get the same kind of results. So um, maybe there, 
maybe you need to find a coach that's going to work with you in that regard and find out um, exactly the style he wants to play and make sure he, it isn't maybe an aggressive style, maybe a bit more of a, a river hockey. But at the end of the day, if you play that way and you lose, you're still going to be up that, going on that uphill battle um, where um, fans aren't really going to be in, interested unless you're a playoff team. So it is a bit of a balancing act. But I kind of agree with you that um, you do have to entertain fans even if you're not winning. The other thing, too, is that they're going to have – all these players from different organizations coming together at training camp. And obviously, you know, after a couple of months, it'll be, you know, just kind of business as usual, if you will. But at, at the start, there'll be a bit of a, a blending in process, a bit of a, everyone getting to know each other. There's no core. The core will literally be showing up at, at training camp the first day and going, I guess we're the important guys. And then they start working <laughs> together. Like, it, I think the coach needs to be a guy that can really connect with people. I know that's sort of a quality of all NHL coaches, but – I think I think the whole personable angle uh, is important in this situation, at least more than say just jumping into uh, a team that that has a strong core already. I think there there'll be a bit of kind of playing uh, playing kind of uh, you know a player's coach mentality or or having that player's coach mentality where in the first couple of years there's going to be a lot of bumps along the road and there's going to be uh, a lot of different personalities in the room and and just sort of that intangible aspect that we we sort of forget about sometimes. Uh, I think that'll be important in this weird, unique, interesting situation in Vegas. Yeah, and I remember talking to Barry Trotz about that. Like, it was basically him and David Poyle were right on the ground floor uh, in Nashville. Like, they literally painted or picked out the paint for, like, every room. Like That's the, awesome. I can just oh, picture them going to the paint store yeah, in, like, like <laughs> Tennessee somewhere. They, they picked the colors for the team. They picked the colors for, like, the offices. And I was even talking with, um, uh, what's his name in Vegas now? I was coaching the Brandon Wee King. Kelly McCrimmon. Yeah, Kelly McCrimmon. And he even said, he goes, yeah, we're trying to figure out where the boardrooms are going to go. Um, he's like, yeah, right now I'm just actually talking to you on the phone. And uh, we're deciding, okay, how the boardroom's going to look. like. So the coaches generally, well, at least, Trot was a, a very big part of that. So um, York sort of kind of laying down the foundation. And, and I may remember talking to Trot about like early days, and he said like he, he would make a point of kind of walking around Nashville as much as he could, um, kind of shaking hands with everyone. Um, in some cases, giving out tickets to games. Like it's very much very kind of local junior hockey kind of a, a feel to it, especially when you're in a non-traditional market where you're the first kind of professional sports team trying to make it there, uh, I do think you have to, like you mentioned, is kind of, you're almost part salesman, part coach, or part uh, GM in, in that regard. And maybe that goes for the players as well, making them understand that, hey, if you're going to be a part of the Vegas Golden Knights, it goes beyond just kind of showing up and playing hockey. Like You've got to be at these community kind of um, – whether the rallies or whatever they are, like you've got to show your face. Um, you've got to kind of try to get fans excited about a product that they really know nothing about. Yeah, and another aspect about it is that they have said, uh, like Bill Foley, the owner, has said, we don't want a first-timer as our coach. But then again, you know, you see a lot of guys, say in the AHL or elsewhere, that may you know may squeak in there as kind of a dark horse like I wonder if they're giving any thought to a guy like Travis Green within the Canucks organization 
he runs the uh, the Comets, the Utica Comets for them, the HL team, and then Sheldon Keefe with the Toronto Marlies. Like these guys, maybe maybe they bring them on as associate coaches or assistant coaches. I don't know if you go dive in into the deep end of of an expansion team with with a rookie coach, but if they went off the board, I wouldn't be like a hundred percent surprised. I think I'd be um, a little taken back. But those are two coaches that uh, they've been talked about for. I don't know, two or three years as sort of, you know, these are the, these are the ne- this is the next wave of NHL coaching and they just haven't got their shot yet. Yeah, I, w- I would like for those kind of guys to get a shot, maybe as an assistant coach though. Like obviously with Travis, like um, his work in Portland, um, so many guys have passed through there as well. Um, so, and then him working in Utica, you know, he's got a, a, a an eye for kind of working with uh, young players. So that that is going to be a benefit. I just... Yeah, with what Foley's saying and just kind of, I, I don't know, I get the feeling that they're going to go with someone at least has done it. Um, maybe not the experience level uh, as a Hitchcock or a Julian, but at least has some sort of resume in the NHL um, beyond just being a player. Uh, that's the way I would think. Although, yeah, who, who knows? Maybe maybe they surprise us. Um, you got to remember, like, George McPhee, like, was Bruce Boudreaux, was that his, was that his first NHL job in, in Washington when McPhee had him? Like, um, there, there is sort of a track record there where he, he kind of went off the board also. Yeah, I guess we'll have to see with that. And w- Let's shift gears, though, to uh, the Jack Adams race of this current season. So obviously Vegas is not involved in that in any shape or form. You would assume that the, the, the coaches that we're going to talk about aren't going to be touched by Vegas because they're just having unbelievable seasons. Uh, on the top of my list and probably lists across the board, it's, uh, it's pretty much a three-horse race between Mike Babcock John Tortorella and Bruce Boudreaux. Uh, I'm going to leave it to you, though. Where where do you go on the Jack Adams for Coach of the Year at this point? You know what? I had uh, Tortorella leading it with uh, either Boudreaux or Babcock second. That was about maybe a month ago. I, I've sort of changed now. Um, I'm sort of leaning towards Boudreaux with either Babcock second and Tortorella third. Um, that's just because, I, I, well, no one expected the Blue Jackets to kind of continue the run that they were on uh, about a month ago uh, at the start of the year even. Um, but, yeah, I just, like, the longer this goes on, like, Minnesota is really kind of separating themselves. And when you look at the division they're in, like, uh, to be that far ahead of Chicago is just kind of remarkable, especially with the games in hand they have. But I'll throw another name out there. Um, I don't think he's getting enough love as um, Barry Trotz uh, with Washington. Like, it's. I think we overlook the teams that are successful year after year after year. Uh, but a lot is kind of. It's easy to kind of take a step back uh, when you haven't had that playoff success, and then you go back into the regular season, and it is almost kind of that hangover. And yet, Trotz has got this team kind of going really right now, and it, they're far and away the best team in hockey. I think. Um, Eighty points. Uh, they've got what a seven-point lead, just killing it in the East. So. Um, I, I really like how they're kind of peaking uh, at the right time, and I, I think a lot of it's going to depend uh, when we look at how successful the Capitals are. It's obviously going to depend on the playoffs, but uh, for what they've been able to achieve uh, this regular season, year after year, it, it is kind of remarkable. The Jack Adams is such a difficult award to really get a handle on in terms of why. It's the most improved coach award, most improved yeah, team award. Right? Which is like, like unfor- it's unfortunate. It's basically. You know, every year you go, okay, this team has exceeded expectations. There's your Jack, yeah. Jack Adams Award winner. Uh, it's almost like to a T. Um, Trotz won it last year. So, I mean, I guess that was 
I don't know if they exceeded expectations last year. And then Bob Hartley won it the year before, Patrick Wall the year before that, uh, Paul McLean before that, Ken Hitchcock before that. <laughs> the funny thing is that Trotz is the only guy that still has a head coaching gig. Obviously, Paul McLean has has a, a kiss of death, an assistant gig, right? Yeah, it's like it's like a kiss of death. I don't know if I don't know if you would even want it as a as a head coach these days. But uh, to to get back to my point, it's it's voted on by the broadcasters and. I know you wrote about it a month or two ago where you talked to a few of them. Uh, it seemed like they were basically they, – they were amazed by what Tortorella was doing and also what Babcock was doing. Like it, it based, the, the crux of the article was look at these two coaches and the expectations going in and now look at what their team has done. How do you not give it to that? You know what I mean? It was kind of you know yeah. what, the typical it's, Jack it's Adams the over style. It's the overachiever award basically. I, I, I don't really argue those two characters – but it's just I, f- I find this award just so hard to really like sink my teeth into and really like find that 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 one thing that you point to. It seems like more of an arbitrary anecdotal thing. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I, I think it's also kind of silly that like as successful as Mike Babcock's been, uh, he hasn't even won the award yet. <laughs> it's like, what has he had? Uh, was it twenty straight seasons in Detroit where he made the playoffs and? Uh, never gets recognized, and now he goes to Toronto and he makes the playoff in his second year, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, slam dunk! He should, he should definitely win it." So it is kind of a silly award. Um, I don't know that. Really, they should award it uh, after the C, after the whole playoffs is done, because uh, it's hard to give. Like last year, how does Mike Sullivan not win Coach of the Year when he takes over the job midway through the season, where a Pittsburgh team that was floundering. Um, takes them all the way to the Stanley Cup final and wins. Um, really, I think in everyone's mind, he was the coach of the year. And yet, because it's a regular season award, and all the awards, I guess, are regular season awards, it's just kind of silly, though, because in hindsight, he was the best coach last year. Well, and he's a perfect example of maybe all of it coming. I mean, it all kind of, you know, came together at the right point, and, you know, Crosby started scoring again, all those sort of things. But. When you looked at his body of work and what he his influence, I mean, between systems and deployment, and maybe by the time the playoffs came around, line matching. I mean, those are key criteria in my mind in terms of determining who's a good coach. Uh, well, he's the reason why Matt Murray was pretty much called up, and Connor Sheary, and a lot of those guys from the minors, right? Like he went to Rutherford and said, "Hey, like these are the guys I had back in the minors. I trust them. I think I can deploy them in, in a great and give them great opportunity." and um, they're gonna flourish here, and you know, just, like that's what exactly happened. So it's kind of funny. Like maybe the coach of the year is uh, the guy that just took over in Boston, or maybe it's gonna be Doug Waite. Like uh, who knows what these teams are gonna look like in a couple months, or maybe it's gonna be Mike Yo. Uh, uh, the way that St. Louis has kind of been going lately. So it is kind of funny. Like I know all these awards, like I said, the regular season awards, but um, if Trotz or say if Babcock uh, is named coach of the year and they go out for nothing in the first round of the playoffs. I was like, geez, that, that was the guy that everyone picked. Yeah. I, I guess you got to draw the line though at, at the the regular season. Otherwise it's not kind of a fair, a fair vote for all the teams that aren't in it. And, and it's not a fair, like you don't want to be thinking just about the playoffs. Cause then it becomes like this really small sample size that you're focusing on. You want to think of the body of work. So I like, I get why it's all regular season based. Yeah. I don't know. 
okay well like since we can't really figure out the jack adams award and how to really you know land on a on a suitable winner let's talk about what makes a good hockey coach in 2017 because like i alluded to a couple minutes ago sometimes it feels like it's it's just kind of you know based on how well the team is doing in terms of like you know what kind of streak they were on in the middle of the season uh sort of uh, the, the overachiever feel to them what like what qualities do you think are are necessary not even necessarily by by you know jack adams standards but just in general if if you're looking at a coaching nhl what's you know three things that you would absolutely have on the top of your list well it's always funny because it's like the typical line is like you find me a good goaltender and i'll find you a good coach and the opposite as well but that being said like I just look at what Babcock's been doing this year and everything he's done. I almost say, okay, that's why he's such a good coach. And that's why everyone kind of praises him. Like he gets the most out of players. He takes a Jake Gardner who I think a lot of people might've wanted to run out of town and turns him from maybe a bottom pair defenseman to a guy that's maybe a legit number three defenseman. Um, and is playing really well these days. And same thing with Nazem Kadri. He turns him from a guy that um, looked like he was maybe a tweener between a second and a third line player and uh, gets him to buy into a two-way role and is getting him to play the best hockey he's played uh, in his career. So that coupled in with um, not only giving an opportunity, but giving the right opportunities to guys like Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, even a Nikita Sashnikov, um, and really getting the most out of every single player. Like, if you look at a team and you say, okay, uh, player A, B, C, D, all the way down, uh, they're all sort of overachieving or at least meeting their expectations. Um, and what is the reason there? Like, what is the, the magic formula? Well, it's typically the coach. The coach has been deploying them in the right roles, but also getting them to buy into whatever role that he's put them in. And, um, that's the thing I look at. It, it is kind of funny. Like I know, like you can actually look at possession stats. And you can say, okay, from the Randy Carlisle team to a Mike Babcock team, the, the team is uh, generating more shots for and limiting their shots against. But uh, for me, I just look at um, go down the lineup and say, okay, Tyler Bozak's playing best hockey of his career, and he doesn't have Phil Kessel, and uh, Van Riemsdyk is also overachieving, and you can just go down the list. And uh, that's how I kind of uh, base it. Yeah, a lot of it for me is having the roster that the coach has in front of them. The, the the coach has to actually look at them and go, okay, be realistic. Okay, this guy is a puck mover. I'm not going to put him in situations where, you know, maybe he's supposed to be a shutdown defenseman. You gotta you gotta play to the guy's strengths, and that's what's going on with Jake Gardner. He is a player that's that needs to kind of have a leash off him. He needs to be able to skate the puck and do whatever he wants. Obviously, within a certain uh, parameters or, or whatever. He's still a defenseman. But under Carlisle, he was kind of, you know, he had a short leash and he was kind of like, he felt like he couldn't really be himself. And now I think he is. So that's a that's a de- definite testament to Babcock going, hey, Jake, I know what kind of player you are and I want you to play like the, you know, to your strengths. So I think that's definitely high up there. I also think a guy like Joel Quenville doesn't get enough credit for, being able to be as successful as the Hawks have been over the last, uh, I guess it's six, seven years now with losing depth to free agency. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be able to, to make the most of what you have. And I feel like although Quenville's had the Patrick Canes and and the, the Jonathan Taves and the Duncan Keiths, they still, they've had years where their depth just hasn't been there. And then all of a sudden 
they're contending for the Stanley Cup, and it just seems like there there's a bit of a, a coaching angle to that sort of success. Uh, I'd also say just, I guess, managing players in a sense that keeping them focused on the ice. I mean, I think a lot of times with off-ice issues or even just – um, you know, getting too caught up in being a celebrity. Um, I think that's sort of a thing that, that a coach can go, hey, man, you're a hockey player first. You got to come to the rink, put your work in. When you go home, you can do whatever you want within, a, you know, a certain kind of uh, tasteful manner. But, you know, the, I think a coach can kind of get into a player's head in a positive way in that manner. And I guess a, a poor coach in, in the other way, if they're not really paying attention, I think keeping them kind of focused on the task at hand and maybe – that even works with playoffs. Uh, if if a team is always a really good regular season team, but then falls apart in the playoffs, maybe that's a bit of a, a coaching thing. I don't know. Um, so I think that's that's another kind of tick on the on the checklist. And I, I don't know. It's it's weird, right? You th- you think of uh, former players and you go, oh, that guy seems like he'd be a good coach. Like I don't know, Wayne Gretzky, for example, <laughs> best player ever, doesn't turn out to be a good coach. You, you, you try to think of stuff to do with coaching and it doesn't really all come together. There's just certain parts that you can pick at. And uh, that's my little rant about that. No, it's funny. It's uh, I don't, I don't know how guys become coaches. It's typically guys that like you mentioned, like it's the Palmeries who um, has a nasty eye injury as a young guy and figures out, okay, I want to stay in this game and how do I get there? Or it's the backup goalie who, who kind of, um, has been watching the game from ice level and has seen plays develop and is kind of soaking it all in and uh, has always been a good dressing room guy, so he kind of has an ear for the room already. So it, it always is kind of funny. I, I've, I've gone through this exercise a lot of times where I'm just like, okay, who would be a good coach out of here? And inevitably I'm always wrong because the guy I think is going to be a good coach ends up just kind of, I don't know, maybe not having the inclination or maybe even the, the smarts to, to be that uh be that guy but look I, I covered Travis Green as a as a player and but to see him become the coach that he's become in in the WHL and now in the minors and kind of being tapped as the next young thing I would never have guessed that like he was the guy that uh, on road trips would be kind of leading the poker in the poker games and talking in the dressing room he was never a guy that would just kind of break down plays for you and yet here he is uh, all these years later um, being tabbed as the next guy. Well, I wonder how that works, too, because you look at Dale Hunter, and he's built a hockey empire in London with the London Knights. As a player, he wasn't exactly a guy who you looked at and went, you know, great hockey mind, you know, a guy that really, you know, thinks the game well. Like, you just didn't think that. But then you go to London and you talk to him and you see the players that they produce and how much he cares about things like skill – which you didn't really see when he played. He was kind of a, I mean, he was skillful, but his his kind of mo was 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 roughing it around, and, and obviously has that infamous slash on Pierre Turgeon. You just didn't yeah. really, you didn't really see it. Like if you had asked Dale Hunter then, or if you'd asked his friends, then they probably go, I don't know, I don't think he'd be a good coach. And then here he is. He's obviously coaching the NHL, and he's comfortable doing his thing in London. If I'm thinking of this is a this is a good exercise that. Uh, that you thought up of there. If, if I'm thinking of current NHLers who might be a good coach in the future, um, one that comes to mind, and it was when you said the, the backup goalie thing, is Ben Scrivens. I know he's in the KHL now, but uh, yeah. he, he always struck me as, as a very smart guy and charismatic, and he was an Ivy Leaguer and just – I mean, I don't know if he'd be a better a TV analyst than a coach. It's hard to – sometimes those those areas kind of cross because, you know, you see a lot of uh, analysts 
uh, that that are previous coaches and whatnot. Obviously, it's you're talking about the game. It's uh, there's a lot of crossover there. I don't know if Scribbins falls more on the analyst side or if he falls more on the coaching side, but he's one that comes to mind. Yeah, that's a good one. I, of the star variety, um, a guy that I think would be just perfect for that would be Steven Stamkos as well. And, and, and like a guy like him, he's made already gobs of money in the NHL. There's no real um, motivation for him to kind of stay in the game and want to be a coach. But you talk to him after the game, and he'll talk to you for like an hour uh, over every little thing that he saw from how the defense was kind of scheming against um, the opposition and kind of limiting their chances and what they were doing. Uh, Sidney Crosby is the same way where they just have like such an uh, innate like hockey IQ. Um, the only problem is those guys are also – able to translate it on the ice where they don't necessarily, like I said, they've made so much money in this game where I, I doubt they'd want to have a, a coach's lifestyle because, man, they think they work hard now as a player. Well, <laughs> the coach's job, especially if you're going to pay your dues in the minors, uh, they're even worse. But um, I, I'm always just kind of – I just love talking hockey with players. And I always – someone I remember once a colleague asked me, go, who do you think is the most intelligent guy in this? on the Leafs team, and I said, Cold Moore, and he was like, what are you talking about? I go, the guy can't skate, he can't shoot the puck, and he's playing in the NHL. Like, he's he's figured it out, man. <laughs> it's more than just the fisticuffs. Like, he's figured it out how to how to stay in the game. So, um, chances are those fourth-line guys, uh, like the, the Brooks, the one I, I would think would be Brooks-like, um, who, again, um, wasn't a, a top-line player in his career, uh, and yet you talk to him, and he can break down uh, every player's strength, weakness. Uh, I remember getting in a long discussion with him about Jonathan Taze, about all the things he does when he's not necessarily an offensive force and why he's so strong defensively. And the way he broke it down and related to me in the layman's terms, it felt like I was just like on the team, and he was trying to give me a little advice here, but he was just trying to help me write a story. And um, if he can relay that message to teammates or even the, as a coach, um, those kind of guys are just invaluable. I'll throw those are great examples. I'll throw a couple others at you. Uh, Derek McKenzie of the Panthers, the captain there. Mm-hmm. When they named him, I honestly had to like not look him up. I knew who he was, but I was like, is he still? I, I didn't know if he was with the Panthers or elsewhere. I wasn't really like I hadn't kept up on Derek McKenzie because I don't know. He just doesn't, uh, you know, elicit those type of feelings and. Uh, but uh, you know, from digging uh, into why they why they actually made him captain, he's super well respected, thinks the game well, and just seems to have that presence, I guess, in the dressing room. Which, let's face it, uh, from all the evidence that we have from the twenty four seven series and and those sort of behind the scenes uh, pieces of video that that are, that's out there, the coach is uh, a motivator. Like it's just it's the fact of the matter, and it's a part of the job and. Maybe he would be a guy that would kind of be sort of a, I don't know, Brooks-like type where he's a very smart guy. Maybe didn't score um, a ton of goals as a player, but uh, might squeeze in as, as, as a coach down the road. Um, and then another one who's more of the star variety is Mark Shifley. Apparently, um, I've read a few stories about him. The guy is just like obsessed with hockey, watches it constantly in his hotel room, keeps keeps tabs on everyone in the league, can break down every team and, and knows every player. So I think that's you know being a being a hockey nerd like that that might be one of those things where he retires and and there's an offer out there and he takes a chance because he's going you know this is just what I do anyway so why don't I get paid for it? <laughs> that's a good point. And Duchesne's another guy like that where yeah he, he can tell you 
think everything he can tell you like what sticks guys use throughout the league like he's so like a, a hockey nerd in that regard and yeah it, it's funny like when you talk to some guys they're just completely clueless they don't know where they're playing next week they don't know who's leading the league and uh point assists or whatever they don't even know where, where they are in the standings they just know okay well i'm supposed to go on the team bus and i'm supposed to go on the ice and uh, i'm just gonna let my hockey kind of uh uh, IQ kind of take over and then you got the other guys who are just kind of they really work at it and they're trying to gain every little edge uh, possible and it, there really is no rhyme or reason why certain guys are successful but I think as a coach yeah you definitely have to have that presence and you have to be one of those guys I think in the room that people naturally gravitate towards and maybe not necessarily a leader but uh, at least someone that uh, gets along well with everyone if you're kind of a pariah in the dressing room uh, I find it really hard that you become a coach unless you're going to be the Mike Keenan variety and just kind of lay down the hammer night after night. I don't even know if you can be Mike Keenan anymore and, and get I away with it. I think those guys are done. <laughs> well, and you look at John Tortorella and how he's, even even just from September, he was World Cup, at the World Cup, he was still sort of this villain, this guy who hadn't learned how to massage you know, around players and, and kind of be more of a player's coach. And now you look at him and he's having a great time with the media. He seems to be well-liked within the dressing room. I don't know if that was an overnight thing or if the, if the World Cup was sort of a blip on, on the radar of his overall transformation. But John Terrell has got to get a lot of credit for, for what he's been able to pull off, especially in terms of like his personal brand, I guess you could say. He's totally pulled a 180 there and all of a sudden now he's, uh, he's liked by everyone. Yeah, it's funny. Like I, I did a story a couple years ago on the death of the iron-fisted coach, and at the time, uh, Hitchcock had had his transformation, and uh, the only guy I think the only guy left was Tortorella, and I was just kind of like, okay, well, he's basically uh, the last kind of uh, he's the dodo bird out there in the NHL, and uh, it didn't look like he was ever going to change his stripes. Um, like team after team, he was just kind of. Uh, relentless in his kind of okay, my way or the highway. And it, it is kind of remarkable just to kind of see um, how he's changed. And um, you hear from Columbus players and broadcasters. Like I was talking to Cam Atkinson earlier this week, and basically um, he's become Tortorella's like Marty St. Louis, uh, same exact size. And under Tortorella is getting the chance that no other coach really gave him. And um, he can't say enough good things about how Tortorella has really brought this team together and has been kind of an us versus them kind of mentality. And that the cancel morning skates because the players um, need a little extra rest, like that was never going to be in Tortorella's kind of toolbox um, in the when he was with the Rangers or the Canucks. Like it, it, it's amazing how he's done a 180, and you're seeing the results and. Uh, I think ideally, or essentially, you're going to get a longer shelf life because of that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the morning skates because that's sort of a part of the coach's duty as well is to kind of set the schedule and set the tone for, you know, the type of fitness or workouts that they endure. Uh, you know, are they staying on for later practices? Are they getting bag skated? Like, they hold some power in that sense as much as it's sort of a player's league in terms of them them being – the stars and them being the ones that put butts in seats. Like the coach still kind of, you know, he has his whip, so to speak, in in certain terms. And uh, Tortorella seems to have figured out a nice balance between, uh, you know, catering towards what the players want and sort of 
you know, still doing his own thing where he's saying, guys, I'm the boss around here. So all in all, though, it's going to be a, a hell of a, I guess, I don't know if you call it a Jack Adams race, a hell of a, a thing to <laughs> a thing to watch towards the end of the season because we have, yeah. um, you know, I don't know, uh, 20, 25 games per team left. And there's no clear-cut answer at this point. Like, I don't, I don't know if you could really um, pin your hopes on one guy and go, he's guaranteed. Uh, that's just the, the, the fact of the matter. I think it's going to be real hard for broadcasters to ignore uh, what Babcock's done with the Leafs. Like, to go from worst team overall to quite possibly they could be second in the division and the way that Montreal's been kind of trending. Uh, don't be surprised if uh, they kind of fall out of favor, too. So as long as the Leafs kind of don't, like, fall off the edge here and the Leafs and the rookies don't hit uh, walls and Anderson doesn't kind of allow five or six goals a game, um, I-, I could see this becoming, like, Babcock's award to lose kind of thing. Yeah, and you can't discredit the fact that he has had upwards of nine rookies. Like, they basically have been the youngest, That's ridiculous. The youngest team night in and night out, and – their young players are their best players. They also have some really good supporting players of James Rand, Van Riemsdyk and Tyler Bozak, like we've talked about, Jake Gardner. But their bread and butter is their rookies, and that, that could have went really south at the beginning of the year. It could have been, let's just say, in, a, in an alternate universe. You know, maybe just Austin Matthews works out, maybe Mitch Marner, but the rest kind of tails off. Like, that wouldn't be – they would be in a way different spot if they didn't have the Connor Browns, the Nikita Zaitsevs, the Zach Hymans. If the, all those guys weren't contributing their own little – piece of the pie then you know does Babcock look as good so he's done something something there to to kind of make it all make it all uh turn on the right side and don't forget it's Toronto like people pay attention because the Leafs are just everywhere right like so you're probably hearing more about the Leafs success and Matthew's success and Martin's success more so than you're hearing about Columbus's success and Zach Wierenski and how he's playing in Cam Atkinson like um, whether you're living in Toronto or you're living out in Arizona or wherever, um, the Leafs are front and center uh, when you're talking about the NHL. Um, whether they're good, whether they're bad, um, they're always they're always seem to be relevant. So I think a lot of people are just like uh, n- probably know more about the team and know more and reading more and hearing more about just how good Mike Babcock's been and how good the rookies have been. Um, versus a smaller team like Columbus, uh, it, it takes something extraordinary like that winning streak that they're on uh, for them to become uh, more of a national story. Absolutely. All right, Mike, I'll, uh, I'll let you loose here. How can people find your work? Uh, so, um, obviously, uh, all the post-media products, uh, um, as well as uh, on Twitter, uh, Michael underscore Tricos, T-R-A-I-K-O-S. And uh, thanks again, John. It's always a pleasure talking puck with you. No problem. Take care, Mike.